Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, as Chris pointed out, this is our third week in this passage in the story of the rich young ruler. And last week, I really tried to drive home just two points. The first point being this, that we are rich. We are rich. And that took a little bit of convincing, I know, last week. And uh, because usually when we think of people who are rich, we think of somebody different, somebody that drives a different type of car, lives in a different type of house, vacations in a different type of place. Yet we found last week, and we took some time to realize that at least compared to the rest of the world, to the majority of the world, at least two-thirds of it, we are radically rich. The second point that we had discussed last week is this, and I just introduced it, and that is our riches present a real spiritual danger. Our riches that we have really and truly present a real spiritual danger to us all. And we talked about that for some time, but here's the truth is we really didn't get to unpack really that point. Instead, the majority of the time what I did is I tried to uh, uh, really unpack and explain why the disciples were so shocked and so appalled by a statement that Jesus had made. Jesus stated, not once, but twice, he had stated this, he had said that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and, and, and the disciples were shocked by it. So I took you through the Old Testament and tried to explain a little bit of that, or a lot of that. Uh, we don't have time to get into it this morning, or else it's going to be a four-part sermon on this passage. Uh, but if you've missed it, I want to encourage you to go back to the website and listen to the previous sermons leading up to this. But what I want to do this morning is I really want to go back to that second point, that our riches present a real spiritual danger to us. And I want to go ahead and I want to give you some specifics. What are these dangers uh, that, that they cause in our life that impede us from following the person of Jesus Christ? And that's where we're going to begin and hopefully prayerfully work through the rest of this text this morning. Uh, I'm actually going to do something that I don't normally do, and that's I'm going to ask you to move over to another passage of Scripture. With your finger there, I'm going to ask you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm not really one that jumps around a whole lot in the passage, but this morning I want to do that. And here's why. I want you to understand this isn't merely something, I don't want you to think I'm pulling this out of the text and, and maybe just teaching something that I'm just trying to teach for the whatever reason without it being clear within the rest of the text of Scripture. We found out that this is a clear teaching that riches indeed present a very great and present danger in all of our lives in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. And, and in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think Paul lays it out very clearly what these dangers are. And there in 1 Timothy, he's, he's writing, of course, to the pastor Timothy. He's the, he's the pastor there at the church of Ephesus. And he begins to write with these words. Notice, if you will, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're not only in danger when you are rich. You and I are in danger even if we desire to be rich but aren't rich. Now, we've all, we all know that it, compared to the rest of the world, we're rich. He says, listen, but you don't even have to have a lot of stuff or a lot of money. If you just hope and desire and want to be rich, you are already in great danger. 
And the reason for that, he says, is because the, the verb tense here means because you are already continually falling over and over again into a trap which, is le- which led you there by your own consuming passions for stuff and for money. It says that you will get so wrapped up, your head will be so consumed with how you make more money in order to be able to buy more stuff that that's all that's on your mind. And the next thing that happens is you find yourself on a road to destruction. Now notice what Paul says next. He says, for the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil, it is it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here's what he says. He says that for the, lo- for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says not only is it a sin to love money. He says but if you love money, it's going to, it's going to cause you to sin all different kinds of various sins. In your pursuit of money to get your hands on it, he goes, you will find yourself willing to lie, cheat, steal, and seem, even some go as far as murder in order to get their hands on money in which they desire, in which they love so much. Now, we're always quick, and maybe we ought to be, I don't know, but we're also quick to say, hey, listen, it's not money that is evil, it's the love of money that is evil. Don't we love to kind of point that out, because that makes us feel a little bit better, you know? And it's true. The Bible doesn't say that, 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 that money itself is evil. It's morally neutral. It's neither, it's neither negative it's pos- nor positive. It's not evil, nor is it good. It's morally neutral. But what I think is interesting about this is if I were to go to you and to the next service, I were to ask this question, how many of you this morning love money? You know, I wonder how many of us like, would raise our hand, right? I mean, you remember the song, I love money, lots and lots of money? I, like, uh, I want the pie in the sky. Do you guys remember that song like back in the, no? You've never heard this song? You're so Christian, you've never heard that song? All right, never heard that song. I'm more sinful every day, I've realized that. But there is a song, it says, I love money, lots and lots of money. I want the pie in the sky. And so, look, look, none of us are going to, and I, and I almost can guarantee that when this letter is being written, Timothy's reading this to the people even here at Ephesus, I doubt very highly that there's anyone even in that church where they're sitting there that think that they are lovers of money. And could I suggest that I think that that's one of the major dangers of money is that you can have it and love it and not even know that you love it. It can have your heart and you're not even aware that it has your heart. And so what he continues to do is he's going to move from this now and he's going to move down and he's going to specifically address those who are rich in the church. And so what he's going to do is he's going to unpack three specific dangers to riches to us spiritually. The first thing he says is this. He says the first thing is is you will become arrogant or arrogance is a danger when you begin to become rich. Notice what the word of God says in verse 17. He says for as he gives for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty. Not to be full of themselves. There is something about working up the corporate ladder, gaining wealth and storing up, that there's a part of us that begins to sometimes make us feel as that we deserve something more or that we're more important in some way than those that make less money. If you look through the word of God and think about this honestly, it seems like money and wealth and pride seem to kind of go hand in hand. Now, what's so wrong about this? Well, everything is wrong with this. 
What's wrong with it primarily is that it's completely opposite of the attitude that Jesus calls us to have. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, this is what Paul writes. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then he goes on and he gives this illustration, the illustration of Christ. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He says, God has called you and I to do what? Fight for the bottom. For you and I to be servants. If we want to be great in God's kingdom, we have to fight for the bottom. Do you know what wealth does? It makes us want the top. It makes us feel as though we are more important when the Bible calls us to see others as more important than ourselves. That's the number one or the first danger of riches. The second danger of riches is it calls for independence. Independence. Notice what the scripture says next. He says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, listen, I know we live in America. We love independence. We even have a declaration of it, right? The Declaration of Independence. There's something that is even good. We, we, there's even a part of our children that we want to teach them to be independent, not to be moved by uh, peer pressure. It's sometimes good to be independent. But may I suggest this, that it is never ever a good thing to be independent of God. And this is where riches lead us oftentimes. What we begin to do is instead of trusting on God, we begin to trust in our salaries, we begin to trust in our money in the bank or in our 401ks. Stop and think about it. Be honest. There are times perhaps financially you're doing well, and in those times it seems to be a time that you almost begin to kind of, kind of fall away from God just a little bit. Maybe not speak to him as much, call out to him as much. Why? Because we, we're not pushing into him because we're not sensing our need for him. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we need him is when we're driven to him, but when we're comfortable with all of our stuff and everything seems to be so, we begin to drift. And what the scriptures say is, indeed, you could be financially wealthy but be spiritually bankrupt. And that's the difficulty and not even know it. In fact, this is the very thing that Jesus warned the church of Laodicea about. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, he said this. He said, for you say that I am rich. Remember, the church was filthy rich. He says, I have prospered and I need nothing. But listen what Jesus says to them. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now again, I... I, I could ask this question. Not even do you love money, but I could ask you this question this morning. Are, do you put your faith in money? Are you resting your faith in, in not only your comfort, but your, 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 your security on money? And what would we tend to all say immediately? We would tend to all say, I'm not depending on those things. Well, this is how you kind of know whether you're depending on those things or not. You know when the stock market begins to go crazy? How does that make you feel in your gut? When you, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but there's a certain amount of money that you like to have in a bank account. And whenever it dips below that, do you ever get that sense of insecurity, of kind of fret, of beginning to worry? If you would do this, this would help me. It just, it just it lie. I don't care. Just do this, all right? Yeah, you, yeah, it's just, do you know how hard it is to preach to this? 
It's just so hard. I can't tell you how hard that is. But what's happening is we, we begin to feel that. Listen, there are so-called Christians who two elections ago voted merely because they thought one president over the other was going to help them financially. They felt insecure. So they begin to do these things. And so what ultimately happens is he's warning us. He's sitting there and says, listen, do not put your faith in these things. Do not put your faith into your money and everything. Because, folks, that could be gone in an instant, right? Have you ever played the market? And I'd say play the market because it's almost like gambling, is it not? I mean, you can understand. There today, gone tomorrow. It's very quick. It's very fleeting. So he says, instead of putting your trust in that, instead, fix our hope on God. He richly supplies you with all things to enjoy. I've had folks here in our church go, Brother Mike, don't you ever get nervous that you're going to preach some of these things and you're going to tick some people off and you're going to be out the door? Fine. Kick me out. Will it hurt? Yeah, it will hurt. Will, 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 it be, will I freak out a little? Yeah, I'll freak out a little bit. But here's the thing. I'm just being honest. I don't want to be like, like monster Christian guy. No big deal. You know, you hear those guys, yeah, I'll just get out in front of the whole band. Was they're driving me out of town like I'm leading some kind of parade. No, I'll sit there and go, holy cow. I lost my job. I'm without money. But you know what will ultimately drive into my heart is that truth in First Peter or First in in First Timothy is that God is my supplier, not you, not this church, not anyone else. God supplies all my needs. God is the one that I depend on. Now, here's the third danger. The third danger is selfishness. Paul writes to them. He says they he says they are to do good. The rich are to do good. To be rich in good works. Now notice this. How, how do you do these good works? To be generous and ready to share. Be generous and ready to share. Now you have to understand. When Paul usually writes these churches. He's writing in light of the errors that they're making. So when he says hey rich. Be willing to share. Do good deeds by being willing to share. For those who don't remember. They've got slaves in their church. They've got people who have lost their jobs. He says do good. How are you good? By being ready to share with those who are in need. That's a command of God. To God's people. And so what happens is. He says what can happen is. The more that you begin to get. Have you ever noticed. Like I, I, I remember making nothing. Do you guys remember that? Some of you are like, I know that. I still make nothing, right? right, right. You know, yeah, I don't have two pennies. I mean, like, literally nothing. I remember making, like, four, you know, like, or three thirty-five an hour. I know some of you are like, I made 62 cents an hour. I know you're older than me, all right? Just work with me. Three thirty-five an hour, made the three thirty-five an hour. And I remember, for whatever reason, during this time, it was just so easy for me to give. It's easy. People were, yeah, man, hey, man, here's five bucks. Do whatever. That's like an hour and a half of working for me, right? Here you go. It's no big deal. But there's something about wealth that the more that you begin to accumulate, the harder it is to be able to give it up. It's harder to be able to share. And that's why so, so oftentimes even the teaching of the tithe is so dangerous because we become so affluent, but yet we're still sticking that 10%. And the truth of the matter is, for many people in here, they just write this little check for 10% and it's nothing to them. But the truth is, is what he says here is he says, listen, we need to be able to share. Do you want to know what Paul and the word of God's way of making sure and protecting you and I from loving money is? Do you know what the answer is? Give it away. Give it away. If you want to know, listen, if you want to know truly this morning if you love money or not. See, here's what some of you are doing. Some of you are already thinking, again, Brother Mike's telling him to give more money to the church. I'm not telling you to do that. That's your own sinful, wicked heart. 
Because you want to be able to fight and sit there and say the old grubby, can we be real this morning? You want to be able to say in your heart, the old pastor up there that drives the Cadillac, no Cadillac, 90, 94, excuse me, 2004, Toyota Tacoma, right? Have you seen it? 147,000 miles on it. Okay, just, just relax. Don't want anything, but I'm good. I'm good with that. Okay, you get, you're thinking, and what you're going to use is you're going to think that the pastor up here is trying to get your money. I could care less to have your money. What I'm trying to do is trying to get the very heart, at your heart and my heart, and understand, here's how you know whether you love money. When we talk about it and we talk about giving, if you feel sick to your stomach, you love it. If it's hard for you, if, if when, the, when the offering plate goes by and you sit there and you put it in, and your wife has to slap your hand for you to let go. And when it goes down the aisle, you sit there and go, goodbye, old friend. Goodbye, old friend. And it goes on. Or we begin to talk about other types of giving, like simply live and our, our month that we, we try to live as simply as we can to be able to give. And it's hard. And all you could do is think of all the things that you're going to do without. And I'm not talking about food and shelter and money and water. I'm just talking about the stuff that you love. And you're not going to be able to buy that really cool stuff if you give. Just think how many cool things it could buy when it goes, you love money. The key, he says, is to be able to share and to be able to give. Those are the dangers that you and I face because of the immense wealth that we have. There's a third thing that I want to show you here today in the text, and we're going to jump back to Mark chapter 10 now. And here we are. Here's the third thing. Jesus is our only answer. Jesus is our only answer to our love for money and the danger of the riches that we face. Jesus is the only answer. Now, Jesus has said twice. He said, first of all, he said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he said it twice. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So it's kind of like one of those questions. Man, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it? So Jesus gives us an illustration of how hard it is. He says, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How many of you have heard this passage taught before? Right? And, and, you know, we always have this great teacher that comes out, and they're always showing us something we've never seen in the text, right? And they get up and they go, well, listen, guys, he's not really talking about a literal needle. You know, the loop on the end of the needle? And what he's actually talking about, how many of you heard this? He's talking about a city gate in Jerusalem. It's a small little city gate, and it was very low and very narrow. And in order to get your camel, as though everybody had a camel, right? Uh, yeah, everybody had a camel during the day. To get your camel through, then what you would have to do is you would have to unload its burden, get it down on its knees, and get the camel to kind of do this, slick it up with grease the sides, and really squeeze that sucker on through there. When you finally got through there, and that's what Jesus is saying, man, it's harder to get a rich man into heaven than it is to get that big old fat camel through the eye of that needle. And they called that city gate the needle. There's only one problem. It's just not true. I mean, it will preach, but it shouldn't, all right? Because what we find is 900 years go by before this is ever even mentioned before, and it's mentioned in passing in some obscure writing. But it makes for great preaching, but the truth of the matter is there is no evidence that there was a gate called the needle. So what is he talking about? There's only one logical explanation. Jesus, when he says the eye of a needle, means the eye of a needle. He says it is harder, it is, or it is easier to get a big honking camel through that little hole 
at the top of a needle. Squeeze him through there than it is to get a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand the gravity of what Jesus is speaking of now? And you sit there and say, well, Brother Mike, that's not hard. That's impossible. That's the point. He says it is impossible for a rich man to inherit and to enter by his own ability into the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. You say, how do we know that for sure? Well, verse 36, you could tell by their response. Look at what the disciples say. And they were exceedingly astonished. Now, they've been amazed up to this point, but now they're exceedingly amazed, exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Now, why are they saying this? Well, remember, they're, they're just as shocked as that rich man was. When the rich man was told, hey, you've got to sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me in order for you to know that you have eternal life, they're just as astonished and just as offended now. But what they're saying is, what, what is this response? What do they mean? Then who can be saved? Remember the teaching from last week. They came from an Old Testament perspective. They viewed that those who were rich were righteous. That God gave money to those who did right, that those who obeyed God. And the more you obeyed, the more you got, the more affluent and rich you were. Just look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Look at, look at um, uh, David. Look at Solomon. Look at Job. Look at all of these rich people of God's people in the Old Testament. So this is how they're viewing. So for them, the rich man and the rich young ruler represented the best of the best. The righteous of the righteous. There's no, nobody was better than this guy. And when he says this guy cannot enter into the kingdom of God by his own works of righteousness. They say to themselves, what chance do we have? What chance does anybody have to ultimately be rich? To be able to get in there. Now what is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to get them exactly where he was trying to get that rich young ruler. He was trying to show them not their wealth, but their deficit. He was trying to show them that even though they may be financially wealthy, they were spiritually bankrupt before God. That they had nothing to offer God. That there was, they could do nothing for God, give nothing to God to be able to gain his acceptance into eternal life and into the kingdom of God. He wanted to get them so that they understood and they identified themselves as the children that he had just met and just received. Those children that come empty handed and say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to give to you. I'm just coming to you by faith. And Jesus says, that's how you have to come. It's where he's trying to get them. That's where he's trying to get you. It's where, he, where all of us must be if we have any hope of being saved. And notice this. Even though this is dark, this is gloomy, this is an impossibility, there is a glimmer of joy. There's a glimmer of hope in the midst of the sorrow. Jesus says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with, with God, but, but not with God. For all things are are possible with God. Yes, it's impossible for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And yes, th there is a key. It's impossible for him because he, he, is, he is in grave danger because his riches foster pride, independence, and, self, and selfishness, and self-centeredness, all apart from how you have to be to come before me to receive what only I can give you, which you cannot earn or which you cannot gain. But here's the idea. In light of the bad news, he gives them the good news, it's impossible for man. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. All things, even this, is possible for God to be able to do. 
And so this is interesting because the truth is whether the person is affluent and wealthy or whether they're not wealthy, the truth of the matter is we're all in this condition. All of us have idolatrous hearts. Even if we don't have the riches, our hearts still yearn. When we're lost, our hearts still yearn for the stuff. Romans 1 and 2. It's still craving after the creation rather than the creator. Are y'all with me? Yes. This is what it means to be lost. Giving up the glory of God for the glory of stuff, for the glory of things. And so what do we do? We have no, here's the bad news. We have no way to change your heart. Even now, even born again, there are things that battle for my affections for God. How about for you? Stuff. And here's the truth. I can't do anything about it. I can't change an idolatrous heart. But the good news is, and here's his point, God can. It's one of my favorite passages in all the book, all, all the word of God, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Just write it in your margin. Let me read it for you. Here's what's going on. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people. They're running from God. They are idolaters at heart. They're setting up idols all over their country, all over the land in which God has entrusted them with. And God tells them, he says, listen, he goes, you have not followed me. You are disobeying me. You're not listening to my prophets. But let me tell you what I am going to do, not even for your sake, but for my sake and for my glory. And this is what he says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. He says, you may not even want it. You may not even desire it. But I will come inside your heart for my glory and give you a new heart that now craves for the creator more than the creation. And the Bible is evidence of story after story that demonstrates this. Instead of the money, now it's God. Where do we see it? We see it, let me give you a couple examples. Story number one, the story in John chapter 12 and verse 3. And later even in the book of Mark, we'll see this story. It's the, the, the story of Mary. The woman, Jesus is reclining. Remember the story, Jesus reclining at the table with his disciples. All of a sudden, a woman comes in, long-haired woman comes in. She's got a flask of spikenard, very expensive perfume. Scholars tell us that it's probably worth anywhere between twenty-five dollars and $35,000. And scholars tell us that this is most likely her retirement. This is her 401k. This is what she is supposed to be living on for the rest of her life. All of us would say, if you're wise, keep it. But in one radical act of worship, she breaks it and she pours it over the head of Jesus. She just gives it all in one moment for, for Jesus, on Jesus' heart. Now, here's what's amazing about it. You see that heart, who sees the infinite worth of Christ, but then you see a man who sees infinite worth in the stuff. Remember old crooked-nosed Judas? He's the one that complains. This woman does this beautiful thing. What does he say? What a waste. Should have been given to the widows, and it should have been given to the orphans, he says, right? And so is he really cared for the widows and orphans? No. He's the treasurer. It would have been better to go in the bankroll. He would have taken his cut. This is a man who loved money over God. How do you know? Because he betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. That's how we know. And so here's the, here's the key. You see one unconverted heart and one converted heart. You see one woman who sees the infinite worth of God and the riches of this world fail in comparison. And then you see another man with a corrupted, idolatrous heart. 
for the infinite worth of God fails in comparison to the temporal riches of this world. Only God can change that heart. We see another story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Yes, it is true, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, okay? He was a wee little man. And you know the story. He was up in the sycamore tree, and all of a sudden Jesus says, I'm come, come down, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. They go to the house. Before he goes to the house, this man has a radically idolatrous heart. The religious leaders know it. They say, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he eating with this man? He was a crook. He was ripping people off. And not just any people, his own people. He loved money so much, he was willing to rip off his family in order to be able to get the stuff. So there he is, and something happens in the middle of this dinner that everything radically changes. Because then he turns to Christ and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What makes a money-loving, money-grubbing, liar, cheater, thief to sit there and completely radically change his view of money and say, I'm going to give half to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'm going to give them four times what I cheated them with. What happens? Jesus Christ changed this man's heart. He did what we cannot do. So what do we do then this morning? Maybe you're sitting there this morning and saying the truth of the matter is I cannot follow Jesus because the truth of the matter is right now my heart is for the stuff, is for the things of this world. It is for my house, it is for my, it is for my 401k, it is for my cars, it is for storing more things up. I want to store it up. It is good. I love it. That is what drives my life. What I call you to do is call out right now and, and repent because here's the deal. Some of us, too, may truly be born again. And see, it's so fuzzy because I don't know if you are or if you're not. But the truth of the matter is, is even believers begin to fall back into that. Have you ever seen that? You fall back into that. In my life, I've seen it time and time again where I was okay and I was giving things to God. And I was like, God, this is not my life. You are my life. And then sometimes that stuff just begins to creep back in again. And it begins to take on its beauty again. And all of a sudden, I want more of this stuff. Anybody with me? Say amen. Say hello. And you want to, to have more of this stuff. What do we do? Wrong question. That's what the rich man asked. What do we do? We can't do anything. But God can. So what we do is we just simply come. Say, Jesus, change my heart. Oh, God, rip this out of me change make you look better than all the stuff so that i might live for you and not the stuff last point there are future riches to come there are future riches to come peter responds to jesus in verse 28 peter began to say to him speaking on behalf of the disciples as he normally does see we have left everything to follow you now, i don't really know how to take this with peter you know, we could take it in a positive way, which maybe we should. I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt. And it could very well be, for him, that an expression of joy. Hey, Jesus, you said we have to give it all up. We've given it all up for you. Praise God. Because we find you as more valuable than all the stuff. We're pursuing you, not it. We left behind family. We left behind our ships. We left behind our businesses. We left everything to follow you. We gave it all up. But there also could be, and Jesus understands this of the heart, that as great as our intentions are, can we not also get it wrong in the midst? Something flips wrong. Jesus, I'm doing this all for you. And 
eventually, what do we do? We're doing it all for us. He says, I've given it all away for you, Jesus, proclaiming being proud. But how many of us, how simple it is, you don't have to agree with this, but I'm telling you where my heart is, to do it all for the glory of God, but truly just a little piece, just keep a little of the glory for me so that people will bask in all my great commitment to God and all I'm willing to be able to give up for him. Well, here's what Jesus does. He sets him straight and he sets us straight. He doesn't allow us to take any of his glory. In the Old Testament, he says, I will share my glory with no one. So this is what Jesus does. Verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here's Jesus' point. It may appear, guys, that you are given up a whole lot for the kingdom of God. Young ladies, young men, you who have chosen to follow Jesus instead of being married to an unbeliever, somebody who's not, and you're just sitting there, and it hurts, and it's hard. You feel like you're giving up so much. There are some of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and you have your family has scorned you and pushed you out. I know I've got family members like that. They don't even look at you the same. Friends that look at you kind of weird, like, what in the world is going on? What has gotten to you? You're all radical in religion right now. What's going on for you? And you begin, friends begin to go off. Family members begin to go off. This is what he says. He says, it looks like you're giving up so much, but you're giving up nothing. You're giving up nothing. He says, because for every one family member you lose, you gain a hundred family members. Look around you. You lost a family member? Hello. Look at your father's. Look at your mothers. Look at your brothers. Look at your sister. Here in Celebration Baptist Church, can I just tell you this? I am far closer to many of you than I am to many of my family members, even my close family members. Because we have the tie of the Spirit of God that dwells within us that binds us together. And he says, you're going to gain. He says, he also says lands. We may lose the land here. But you know what it says? Remember what's happening in the context. A lot of these people are losing their homes. Guess what? You lose a home. You've got a hundred homes to stay. If you lose it because you are pursuing Jesus, well, guess what? Got other brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to be there and to be able to comfort you and to be able to take care of you. He talks about land because land was so important. Well, guess what? There's a future land to come. What I love is he, he puts in here one word. He says, and persecutions. Did you notice that? Look at your text. And persecutions. All these good things. And persecutions. You know what he's doing? He's fighting against the modern prosperity gospel message. He's just going to give me more, and he's going to give me more. Here, 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 on this earth, he's going to give me more. And he says, listen, it's not the way that it looks. So much of your rewards and mine are where? In the world and the life to come. Now, I want you to be gripped by this just for a minute. I want you to stop, and I want you to think about this. I told my wife this this week. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 6, and verses 19 through 21, that you and I are so, so, so familiar with it just means nothing to us anymore it says in matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21 do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal it but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in to steal it. 
For where your treasures, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do we understand fully? And I told my wife, I don't understand this fully. I think if this was a reality in my life, would it not radically change the way that you and I live to know that everything that we build up in treasures here are going to rust and fade away? Would you show that picture for me, brother, just for a minute? Pass this up. Saw this driving down the road. Is it up there? There's an antique store with this sign out. I drove past it, and I had to turn around and have to go back and had to shoot the picture Dead people's things for sale. And I thought, how sad. How much there are things even in my own life that I sit there and go, this is precious, this is good. These are the things that we want. These are the things that we're going to harbor. One day, our life is going to instantly be gone. And it's either our relatives that are going to fight and scrap and claw over it. And as a pastor, I've seen it time and time again. And don't you think for a second that your loving children will not pull that plug in a heartbeat so that you do not end up wasting in medical bills their inheritance. Don't you stop and think it for a second. You see, you think I'm joking. (laughs) You think... You think I'm joking? There's nothing joking about that. I'm telling you, I've seen it time and time again. Let's pull the plug. There's nothing we could do. They're getting our inheritance. You know what the best thing you could do for your kids? Spend every bit of your inheritance. You know what the best thing you could do? Is spend it for the glory of God and make that old lazy sucker work for their own money. Do you understand? Again, you're laughing, and I'm completely serious. Let's get 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is describing a final judgment, not not the white throne judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ, that you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, will stand. And it's not a place where you and I will be condemned for our sins, because those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in him. So it's not for sins. It's not, there's not going to be big screens and all of a sudden every sinful thing you did. I know you heard it in Sunday school. Every sinful thing you did was going to be showed for everybody to see to go, oh. No, it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. But what will be evident on that day is what you did with your wealth, what I did with my wealth. And he says, if anybody builds on it with a foundation, he goes, of, of what? Of wood, hay, and stumble. You know what that is? Just all the stuff that we just use and buy for ourselves. House, it's going to burn up. Car's going to burn up. Boat's going to burn up. Vacations are going to burn up. All that stuff is just simply going to be gone. He says, but if you build a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, he says, it will last. Fire will come through, consume it all. He goes, and whatever was done for the glory of God, for the propagation of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom of God will remain. And then you know what he says there? There will be some who will be there. Everything will be burned away and there will be nothing that will stand. 
He says, oh, they'll be saved. See, that's what's so scary. And some of us were sitting there going, okay, that's okay, but will I be saved? There's something wrong with that, isn't there? there's something wrong with yeah i just want to make sure that i'm saved even if i even, even if my whole life means nothing i just want to make sure that i'm saved well here's your security the bible says for some they they will those who are truly saved because they will be saved as by fire but there will be a true sense of loss for you and i there has to come church there has to come for you and i there has to come a place where you and i are living in light of eternity every day where you and I are truly sitting there going, I've been bestowed all of these riches. I wonder if I could sit there with my wife and sit down and go, honey, we could buy this thing right now, but stop and think just for a minute. If we did this, it won't be burned up. This is the greatest investment we can ever make because not only do we invest, but we get a hundredfold in the world that is to come. Not only here, but in the world to come. Jim Elliott, I'll close with this statement. Jim Elliott said this. You know who Jim Elliott is? He's a missionary to South America. He goes down. He has the bright idea to be able to go and actually take literally the command of God to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He goes into the jungles in South Africa. He and his four friends, and as soon as they get on land, they're speared through, and they're killed by cannibals. They're killed. The great thing is, is that God was glorified in all of that, and it begins to move this radical missions movement amongst young people in our country during that time. And this is one of the most well-known statements by Jim Elliott. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool to give it all for the sake of the kingdom of God that will be burnt up, that people will be buying and fighting over, and it will be destroyed. You are no fool to give it up in order to be able to store up treasures in heaven for treasure that you cannot lose. Jesus, we come to you. We love you. We thank you. God, we understand that all of this is in light of the gospel. The only way we're able to do any of this is by the power of the gospel, the power that you have come and through your death, burial, and resurrection, you have broke the bonds of sin and you have changed and given us a new heart as Ezekiel chapter 36 is. The problem is, God, that old heart and that, that, that old flesh begins to kind of just drive back for the stuff. God, let's repent of it. God, some of us, let's just go today and maybe just go back and go, let's just sell it, sell it, sell it, get rid of it. the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it be here, whether it be somewhere else, it does not matter to this pastor. Maybe we need to begin to look a little bit harder and see what the call of Jesus Christ and the disciple of Jesus Christ is all about. This altar is going to be open. I'm going to be down here, of course, for the purpose of salvation, but can we also have a time of repentance? And just do this. Say, God, what is it that you'd have me give you for the propagation of the gospel? What would it be that you have us to give? Jesus, empower us to do what you've called us to do. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? And would you respond today to the preaching of God's word?